Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Greater Alton Church. It's good to have you here with me today, and uh, it's nice and cold outside, nice and warm in here. Hope you're comfortable. Uh, my name's Tim, and uh, today we're looking at the seven churches of Asia. And the reason I guess we're looking at this is because we learn from these seven churches the kind of church God wants. Uh, he lays out his expectations to this church. I think I said a week ago or three weeks ago, I learned a lot about what my father wanted by watching my older brother and all the mistakes he made. And by watching him, I go, well, dad doesn't like that and dad doesn't want that. And the same is true when you look at churches in the in, in these seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, God is, is displeased with most of them, five of the seven he reprimands. And from that, we get an idea, oh, God doesn't want that. He'd rather have something else. And notice up here on the screen, here's a, a passage that's in every one, every one of these uh, churches. He says this. This is a common statement all seven times. He says this in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he says this seven times. Pay attention to what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to these churches. And he's saying this to the members uh, and to the people that read this book. And I hope this morning, you know, and through this series, you pay attention to what, what, uh, what God is saying to these churches. I'm taking a stab at it to try to understand these churches. I've never preached out of, out of Revelation these particular, these particular passages. And uh, they seem to be getting more difficult as uh, we, we go through them. Today is no exception. And so I, I pray, and I'm praying for you and pray for me, that we'll hear, that each of us will hear what God wants us to hear from these seven churches. And you say, well, why is that so important? Well, because God may define the church, but you and I determine the church. We determine whether we're going to live up to this definition or these expectations that God puts uh, before the church. Now, today I want to talk about a church that's in conflict with its culture. It's, there's tension between this church and its culture, and it's the church in Pergamum. A fellow by the name of H. Richard Newber noted something as he did a study on church history. He noticed there are five basic ways churches have understood their relationship to their culture. Let me give them to you here real quick. The first one is against the culture. There's the church that's against the culture. In other words, they separate themselves from the culture. They find the culture bad. They find the culture evil. They don't want to be a part of the culture. And they, that may limit to the to limit them with the kind of technology that they choose to use in their everyday life. I think of the Amish in some ways, but it's also it also uh, can be said that a church that's against the culture finds themselves cynical toward the culture, very, very skeptical, very, and they, they place themselves somewhat aloof uh, by by being so self righteous. Um, to the culture, and some are even militant toward the culture. You know of people that have bombed buildings, shot people, protested funerals in the name of Jesus Christ because they have a problem with the culture and therefore they rebel against the culture. They are against the culture. Another, another basic approach churches have is they're of the culture. They're the opposite of the, of the first group. They're of the culture. In other words, they want to be a part of the culture so much they want to be pals with the culture. And so they're very 
They're very interested in what, is the, what does society want? What do they like? What appeals to them? Uh, they're not just sensitive. They really want to be a part of the culture. And so they, some of their values, most of their values, their most important values, are shaped by what society wants rather than what the scriptures teach. Then there's the church that approaches the culture by being above the culture. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, they, they, they know both matter. That the kingdom of God matters and so does, so does their culture. And they want to be, they want to be involved in both of them. The problem is, though, they tend to divide the spiritual life from the secular life. So they're one way on, they, they're a church on one way on Sunday and they're, and they're all wonderful and worship God and think, and they put on their best. But then during the week they live any way they want because after all, they're part of the culture. They can't help it. Then there's the approach number four, and that is intention with the culture. There's some tension between the church and the culture. And this is what, this is the challenge of living in both worlds. It's very difficult. You know, I want to, I don't want to ignore the culture. I want to be part of the culture. But because the culture is corrupt, I'm concerned about is it going to corrupt me? And so there's this tension as to what do I do in this culture? Like, what movies should I watch? What music should I listen to? You know, wh- where should I go? Where should I eat? Where, what should I do with, with what, what should I, where should I spend my money best? And how should I be good stewards? And so there's this tension and a lot of times a lot of guilt connected to it because you find yourself wrestling with, well, am I, am I going too far against the culture or am I going too far with the culture? And so there's this tension, you see. That's, that's in every decision we make. We don't know really, well, what should I do in this situation? Then there's this fifth approach, and that's transformers of the culture. And this is a church that understands that they're in the culture and they engage and they're involved in the culture for the purpose of changing it, for having, making it, having influence and impact on the culture. Today, what I want to look at is a church that's like the last two. They're in conflict with the culture, but they're there to influence the culture. It's the church in Pergamum. Let's read about it here in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me. Not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. It's from this passage, from this communication to this church, we learn what God wants His church to be. And I learn what God wants, wants me to be as I live in my culture. So what does God want me to know as I live in the culture that I'm presently in. Number one, I'm not going to get along with the culture. 
okay, let's just lay it right out there. I'm not going to get along with the culture. See, the culture is on a different page than the kingdom of God. You know, I think, the, in fact, the Bible compares these two cultures, these two worlds, light and darkness. Well, how opposite can you get there? You know, uh, uh, God and idols, believers and unbelievers. It's, it's just, it's night and day is what he's saying. They're totally different. Notice, notice what he says here in, the, in, in Revelation to this church in Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. <laughs> Imagine you're driving into a city in the Chamber of Commerce. You know, you always have these signs that say things like girls basketball champions and, or, or uh, uh, I think in American Pickers, home of Buffalo Bill, LeClaire, Iowa. You know, uh, there's the city of lights, Paris, the very first people, very first city to use electricity. You know, so it's the city of lights. And then you have Pergamum, city of Satan. Are we staying overnight here, honey? I don't know. I wonder what, what's the tourist stuff here at the city of Satan? What kind of crazy name is that? But that's exactly what it's called. The city where the throne of Satan is, where he lives, it says there. Now, Pergamum is the most excavated city in the world. They've been digging in around this city for centuries. It holds, it at one time held, had the second largest library in the world, second to Alexandria, over 200,000 volumes on papyrus of Egyptian paper. Now, Pergamum is also known, the word means parchment. And what we find is, is that there was a day when Egypt boycotted or refused to send any more papyrus paper to Pergamum because they didn't want their library to get larger than theirs. So Pergamum decided, well, I know what we'll do. They take animal skins and they made parchment. And what they discovered was parchment would outlast the papyrus. So they won in a way. But the, one of the things you're going to notice about this city when you do some searching about it, and, you, and you, especially with the archaeology, you find that this is the city of deities. Tons and tons of temples. Kind of like the churches on every corner in our town. You see temples everywhere. There is a God for everybody. You need a God? What, what you work on your car? You work on your chariot? There's a God for that. I mean, it's crazy. All the different gods there are in this town. Let me give you the six major temples. These are the six major temples in Pergamum. The first one is Zeus, the god of the sky the god of power. And his temple is this huge throne. This huge throne. We don't have a picture of him? There he is. Look at him. He's holding lightning in his hands. He's the god of power. He has power over all. And he is considered the most powerful of all gods. His throne was this... By the way, they reconstructed from the ruins in Pergamum the temple, and it now is in... Berlin, in a, in a museum in Berlin. This thing is massive. And it's this giant throne overlooks this, this, this jet, this, ro- uh, this rock cliff face over, over, the, you know, over everything. And it's saying this is where power sits. The second one is Dionysus. This is the god of pleasure. Oh, thanks. You planning a Super Bowl party? 
Here's the God you want to have involved. You, you want to have a crazy, get down, knock down, drunk, have it all out party. This is the God, man. Go to His temple, God. I'm going to have this party. And I really want to be a good party. Please help us, Dionysus. Help us have a great party. Because you're the God of pleasure. A lot of the orgies and parties at this temple got so out of hand, people were killed. They got killed at this party. So I guess they called the cops. It has to be a real party. Here's the next one. Here's the next God. And that's Demeter. This is the God of food. The God that provides food and harvest for the people. If you're a farmer, if you're somebody that's, that's needing food, you go to Demeter, the temple of Demeter, and ask for food and for blessing. Then there's Athena. There's another major god. She's the god of wisdom and victory. You want, you want more wisdom? I don't know what to do. I, what do we, where should we live? Where should we go? You go to Athena, and she has all the answers. Then there's, then there's Asclepius, a god of healing. Asclepius, um, what's interesting about this particular god is he was a very popular god in Pergamum. And you'll notice, see that snake that's around a pole there he's holding? He goes, there was, what I found out was in this particular temple, a lot of snakes seemed to gather, more snakes than anywhere else in the city, and they were harmless snakes. They weren't like deadly poisonous snakes. So people would be walking around, they'd see these snakes everywhere, and they'd begin to associate Asclepius and health with snakes. And so they begin, they, the way, what they would do is they would like uh, get you drunk or put you into some kind of a drug-induced uh, state, and they'd lay you on the floor of the temple, and then they'd release all these snakes, and they, were, they would crawl all over you. Are you getting kind of woozy here? They're crawling all over you, and that made you better. I'll tell you what, you'd only have me for one treatment. I wouldn't want to go back. But it was believed that these because people were getting better, there must be something magical in the snakes of Asclepius. Um, it tells you the placebo effect sometimes. If we think it's good, it makes us feel better. Hmm? Uh, for example, and by the way, if you'll notice today, we have a, 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 a particular icon that emergency EMTs wear. Uh, some of you familiar with this icon? This is the snake of Asclepius that they wear as a patch on their shoulder. The, the, the God of health. Now I know you've got that, well, there's this one uh, insignia that has the two snakes with the wings. That's not Asclepius. That's, a, that's another Greek-Roman thing going on there. And the medical profession got it confused for a while. They used the wrong insignia for a long time. And then finally they realized, oh, it's Asclepius. So they find healing there. By the way, the second most popular physician uh, in, in ancient history you have uh, Hippocrates, who's the, the doctor, the, the, the father of medicine, but the fellow that was just as almost as popular as he was Galen, and he lived in Pergamum and served at this temple. They called this temple, by the way, a hospital. Then you have the sixth one, and this is where uh, this one started. It started in Pergamum and then went to Ephesus and Smyrna and all the other uh, cities in the province of Asia Minor. And that is the emperor worship, the cult of emperor worship. And this is the temple of Trajan. And this is what the temple looks like today. That is what they put together in Pergamum, what it looks like. It was a massive structure. 
And it was put together, put there and built there first by Augustus, uh, a Roman emperor, a Roman emperor there. And he, and he, uh, you would come there, like we talked about last week, and you would offer incense to, to the emperor. He was the god of lordship, and and he, you, he was called your lord above all. And you would offer incense and get a piece of paper that would keep, would protect you from any persecution or ill treatment because you had your allegiance to Rome by giving your allegiance to this Lord, Lord Caesar. Now, the reason I say, tell you all this, these are the six most popular ones. The reason I'm telling you this is now you can get an idea of why it's so difficult to be a Christian in Pergamum. You've got deities everywhere. Six of the most powerful are there. And just imagine for a minute, you hear the gospel. You're out of town somewhere. Maybe you're a Jew and you went, went to Pentecost in Jerusalem. Maybe you've done something like that. And someone introduces Jesus to you. And you become a Christian. You're baptized. You become a Christian. And on your way home, you're, dry, you're coming back, walking back into town, and you see the city of Satan lives, or you have this idea, oh my gosh, I've got to go back home. I don't know how many times, church camp. I'd go to church camp, get so excited in the last day. And what do we think in the last day? I've got to go home. And some of us here, understand what I'm talking about because home wasn't fun. And, and, and that last day we'd be told, man, don't lose what you've got here at church camp. Don't lose what you have because you're going to go home. It might be difficult. Mom might understand. Dad won't understand because mom and dad have not been at church camp. So they're going to see you coming home going, and, and, and they're going to go, calm down, calm down. And you're, They're not going to understand what you're doing, but you keep being faithful. You keep praying. Learn the things you've learned here at camp. And keep camp going all year long. Well, just imagine you've got Christ and you're coming back to Pergamum and you used to go to all these temples and now you're not. Because Jesus Christ is your God. You come home. First thing you run to your neighbor, hey man, we're going up to Zeus's temple. You coming? No, not this week. Why not? Don't you want to... I mean, he's, he's the God of gods. You know, he'll throw a lightning bolt at you if you don't do something. No, I'm not worried about that anymore. See, Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. He's got all power. He resurrected from the dead. Oh. Hey man, we're having a party. Everybody's going to be there. I got a new flat screen. <laughs> we're going to have a great time. The best wine. I got the, some of the best. And man, the girls, come on. We're going to go to you know, Dionys- you know, Dionysus here. We're going we're to go to... Uh, uh, his temple, you coming? It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, no, not this week. What's happened to you? Man, ever since you come back, you've been different. Don't you want to have some fun? I mean, I mean, this is the God of pleasure, for crying out, crying out loud. Well, you don't understand. I, the pleasure I get now is serving Jesus. He fulfills that desire for pleasure in my life. Well, how about, hey man, we're, a bunch of guys are together, you know, we're down at the feed store and we're getting seed for the year and Hey man, uh, why don't we stop by Demeter and maybe do some sacrificing there because you know, we really want this seed to produce a good crop. I don't need to. Not, not, you guys can go without me. What? Yeah, you can go without me. Well, you don't believe in this? Oh no, I believe that God does provide, but it's through Jesus Christ who's the true bread of life. He supplies all my needs now. I heard about you and this Jesus guy. Hmm. Or maybe maybe you're just going along and, and 
and uh, you're, you're, uh, you're having a conversation at a cafe and, and you're saying, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do this year with, uh, with the 10 acres or, or my chariot. And someone goes, have you went to Athena? Athena will help you clear this up. She'll give you the wisdom you need. No, I don't need that. I've been praying. Praying to who? Jesus. I've been praying to God. And God, who has all wisdom, He has all the answers. Paul said that. Thank God He has. He's the answer. And I find in Him the source of true wisdom. I mean, He is the, the one whose tongue is a double-edged sword, and that's the Word of God. So I pay attention. He said, if you know the truth, it'll set you free. And He has set me free. And man, the wisdom I've learned. It don't sound very smart to me. Well, you need to try this, Jesus. And then you've got Asclepius. Hey, I heard you got somebody sick in your house. Yeah, we're, we're doing some things. And Well, why don't you bring him to Asclepius? You know, maybe we'll run some snakes over him and he'll get all better. I don't need that. I'm, I'm, I'm relying on Jesus Christ. He's the great physician. And he doesn't only take care of me physically, but he's really after the true disease and sickness in me that's in my heart, the sin. And I find him healing me of the pain and the hurt. And then maybe someone says, okay, here's an announcement. I get it in the mail. Everybody's to show up at the temple of Trajan because we're going to be offering sacrifices. We're going to offer incense to the emperor. And we're going to say he's Lord. You coming? No. Are you crazy? No. I've just realized something. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I serve Him now. Man, this Jesus kind of fills everything. Yeah, I don't need all those gods anymore. No wonder they're having trouble. No wonder they called, they called the Christian an atheist. He didn't believe in their gods. The Romans went, you're an atheist. What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm not an atheist. In one sense, maybe I am. But in another sense, I believe in the Creator of all. I believe in God. It's, it's, you see the persecution here in this church because Antipas, it says, he says there, Antipas was true to my name. He did not renounce me. And he was killed in your city. So most likely he was a member of that church. And he died by someone who had what they call the right of the sword, who could kill you at any moment with just a word. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas. Uh, he's only mentioned here one time. We don't know uh, his background. But we do. I guess we do know something significant about him. First of all, he was a faithful witness in his culture. And he was in conflict with his culture. They killed him. They rejected him. And so I, need to, I just need to know up front, I'm not going to get along with my culture. Jesus, or Paul, the Apostle Paul is talking to a young preacher in Ephesus, one of those churches that we're talking about, that's in the province of Asia, Asia Minor, that has Roman, Roman, Roman emperor worship and things of that nature as well. He says to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be treated badly. If you want to follow Christ, you're going to be treated badly. How do I know that? Because Jesus was treated badly by the world too. He didn't get along with His culture either. And if I'm going to follow Him, guess what? You're not going to get along with your culture. You're going to be you're going to get at odds with your culture. You know, I thought about this the other day. 
The Bible says Jesus loved the world. Yet the Bible says we're not to love the world. How can that be? Well, He loved the world differently than what John is saying. He loved the world so much He gave Himself up for us. And He he loves the world so much He challenged the morality and the values and the lifestyle of His culture. He wanted to tell them the truth and not lie to them like so many other would. Look what he says here. Again, John, the writer of Revelation, remembers these words, writes them in his Gospel. If you find the godless world is hating you, remember it got its start hating me. If you live on the world's terms, the world would love you as one of its own. But since I picked you to live on God's terms and no longer on the world's terms, the world's going to hate you. See, there's God's terms, what He wants, and what my culture wants. And see, I'm learning something. I'm noticing this, that today's culture is getting more and more hostile towards Christians. Don't you find it ironic that the the people who preach and teach and champion tolerance in our protests are the most intolerant of Christians? That's our culture. That's our culture. You voted for who? Are you crazy? What were you thinking? See, they're on a different they're on a different page. The world's on a different page in a different book. So I shouldn't expect my culture to get along with me. Like oil and vinegar, they cannot mix. Number two, I learned from studying this about Pergamum that God wants me to be the godly influence wherever I am. That's the second thing. He's saying, you've got to be a godly influence wherever you are. Look at this in Revelation. I know where you live. Circle that. I know where you live. I think one translation says, I know where you stay. Another one would say, another way to say it is, I know where you are. And it's not like, I know where you are, like some parent on a teenager. I know where you are. I know where you were. No, it's, I know where you are. I never lose track of you. You don't have to worry about me not being around. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. What does he say to Ephesus? I know your works. I know how hard you work. He says to Smyrna, I know your trouble. I understand your trouble. And then he says to Pergamum, I know where you live. I know where you are. It's in the middle of an evil culture where Satan lives. You know, I got to thinking about this. Why, why does God want a church where Satan lives? That's the last place I think it, we're going to plant a church. Where? Where Satan lives. How many want to go? Yeah. This team is awfully small, Alan. What's the deal? We can't see if anybody want to go where Satan lives. Oh, I think I'll pass. Why? Why is there a church where Satan lives? Because God wants one there. And He says, I know where you are because I put you there. I know where you are. I know the situation you're in. And I put you in that situation on purpose. On purpose. 
You know, I noticed something as I've been studying the church and looking at the book of Acts and not just noticing the regular things I've always noticed. I've been noticing something else. That the church didn't stay together very long. Did you notice that next to? Man, they're whooping it up. They're together every day, partying. Well, remember Jesus? I mean, they're having a great time, celebrating, having a super time. And it's almost like the Tower of Babel in the New Testament. God's going, guys, guys, I want you to go out. Remember, we're supposed to go. What can we do here? I know what we'll do. In Acts 8, you have a persecution that breaks out, and it says it scattered everybody. All but the apostles are left to clean up after the party. I mean, everybody's gone except the apostles. And it says in Acts 8, and those that were scattered preached the gospel everywhere they went. And what I notice is, what I'm telling you is, is that what I notice is that, that these guys are not trying to run or escape from their culture. They're actually running into the culture. Now, this is something I've never seen before. I, I know you probably say, oh, Tim, you're just saying... No, I'm telling you, I've never saw this. Let me show you this passage. And it may just be a minor passage to you. First Peter 1. And this is in the Living Bible. And look at the reference to Acts 8 here. From Peter, Jesus Christ's missionary, to the Jewish Christians driven out of Jerusalem and scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor? Yeah. And Bethina. Whoa! Was First Peter written to the church at Pergamum? What's the answer, class? Absolutely. It was written to Ephesus. Is it to Thyatira? The next time you start, and I would challenge you to read First and Second Peter now during this series, because you're hearing the instruction to these churches what they should be. So every time you read a passage from First or Second Peter, let it let it oh. Uh, Ephesus heard this. Smyrna had this letter sent to them, and so did Pergamum. And notice it says they were scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia. The churches in Galatia got the copy of this letter. Cappadocia, I thought that was a coffee flavor, but anyway. Asia Minor. There's what I'm paying attention. See, I typed in Asia for some reason in my search engine and saw this and went, holy mackerel. First Peter was written to the churches of Revelation. I bet I can learn what God wants from this book. See how it all ties together? And what do we learn? Well, we learn that the idea of being out of the culture is not really what the Bible is teaching us. See, a lot of times I think, well, I became a Christian, I need to get out of the culture. The influence of the culture. You know, you need to stay away from those bad friends. Well, there's probably some truth in that, isn't there? I mean, there's some situations, i got to admit, you may have no business being in. I remember years ago, a woman uh, who attended this church became a Christian. She used to strip. She quit stripping. I'm not talking about furniture here. She quits stripping. I think that's probably wise. How can I be a Christian and strip? That's not going to work. I sure could get a lot of people's attention, but I just don't know if the message would get across. And then there's probably certain situations, work situations, family situations, where it may be, it might be, we need to, I need to get out of that situation. That's quite possible. 
But most of the time, when I'm, when I'm reading about the church and, and what it's doing, it's not running from the culture. It's trying to engage in the culture. Yes, the Bible does say we're called to be different from the world. In fact, the Bible uses terms like aliens and foreigners and strangers, like the song, This World is Not My Home, I'm Just Passing Through. That flavor, that message is clear in a lot of scriptures. Let me give you one from 1 Peter. Pergamum read this. Dear brothers and sisters, you are foreigners and aliens here. So I warn you to keep away from evil desires because they fight against your very souls. You see, I may feel like it'd be easier for me to be a Christian maybe somewhere else, in a different place, in a different circumstance. And that sometimes may be true. But when I follow the early Christians, they're not trying to escape, they're not trying to flee. It's more like conquest than getting away from it all. In fact, there's this sense of obligation. They feel this sense of obligation to stay where they are and work. You get a chance sometime, and I've got a list of verses here that didn't make the sermon, didn't make the cut. And that's hard to, you know, when you find, find, let me tell you, when you're putting together a lesson and you got all these verses, you don't want to say goodbye to them because you worked an hour to find one or two of them, you know. I'm going to read one of them. I'm going to break this. Look at this. He says, this is Paul in Rome, and this is in the easy-to-read version. I must serve all people, those who share in Greek culture and those who are less civilized, the educated as well as the ignorant. He says, look, I've got to help my culture. I'm in this culture to do something. I'm not going to run from it. No, I feel an obligation. I mean, think about it. If the early Christians had ran every time it was difficult, where would we be? We wouldn't even be a church. Jesus says this to John and the rest of the disciples. And John, again, the writer of Revelation, this has to have an impact on what he's seeing from God. He's reminded of these words from Jesus as he looks at Pergamum. I'll remain in the world no longer. He hears Jesus praying this. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Who's still in the world? The disciples. Huh? Jesus, are you cutting out? I'm leaving, but you guys are staying. And he's praying. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. While they're in the world? Sure. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why doesn't Jesus just take me when I'm baptized? I mean, He buries me. I, I was one of those people who said, would you hold me under a while? I was when I got baptized. Then I come out of the water. I'm like, hmm. What do I do now? I mean, some of us might go, man, I'd just like to get baptized and die and go to heaven and be done. That'd be wonderful. But God doesn't do that. Why not? No, He wants me to stay so I can make a difference. He wants me to engage in the culture, infiltrate the culture, influence the culture. Again, First Peter. Let's say we're in Pergamum and we're in the city of Satan and we hear these words. People who do not believe are living all around you. <laughs> really? Thanks, Peter, for pointing that out. I can tell you right now, I already knew that. Well, I just wanted you to. I you know, want you to know, heads up. People who do not believe are living all around you and might say that you're doing wrong. Yeah, he won't go to the temple. He won't give allegiance to Caesar. 
Live such good lives that they'll see the good things you do and give glory to God on the day when Christ comes again. What's Peter saying? He says, live in the way, live in your culture in a way that points people to Christ. And guys, today, Zeus is not our problem. Demeter is not our problem. You following me? Asclepius? I can barely pronounce his name. I don't even know if that's correct. And what about this emperor? Anybody been to the temple of Trajan lately? We don't have those gods around. But there's some others, aren't there? All clamoring for our attention, our time. There's the temple of me, the God of me. There's the temple of America, the God of America. You better be patriotic. There's the God of, and just, you know, you walk in and open the door to a company that signs your check, and it's the God. I need you here. I need you to work over. Man, I'm giving so much time this place. There's the God of comfort. I call it the God of the easy boy. That's the throne in its place. I've got one of those too. There's, you know what I'm saying? There's all these other gods clamoring, trying to get your attention, trying to get our time, trying to get our focus, trying to get our purpose. They're all around us. And the Bible calls us to live in this culture in a way that points to Christ. I want to tell you something here. You can move to another church, move to another city, change your job. You can change your house. You can, you can, whatever you, I'm going to get a fresh start. Guess what's waiting for you? The culture. It's still there. So what do I do? God wants me in the culture. If He wants me where Satan lives, then He wants me in the culture. He wants me to influence the culture. Why? Because you are their only hope. You are their only hope in that high school. You get all, you know, you're getting all caught up in all that other stuff. Guys, let me tell you something. You're in that high school and there's all kinds of students that need Jesus. You are, you are their only hope. If you're not careful, four years can go by and you've not helped anyone become a Christian. What, what are we going to, what are you going to do about that? You're in that culture, that crazy culture. Am I right? Are you, are you on Facebook? I'm not on Facebook anymore. I'm on Snapchat. Oh, no, I'm on Snapchat. I'm on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I'm on some other, I don't even know what the latest thing now. There's the weird stuff. You know, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And, but what am I doing for the Lord on my campus? The college campus. What are we going to do there? How many students are at SAUE now? Is it like 15 grand? That's a lot of people. You're their only hope. You Lewis and Clark? Well, they don't have as many students. You're their only hope. You're working next to somebody at work that needs Jesus, and you are their only hope. And you're thinking about working somewhere else because I just don't like the work. I don't like the atmosphere. I don't like. Get used to it. What about my family? 
I got, I got family members that give me nothing but a hard time. They say all kinds of, people do, don't they? He says they say all kinds of things about you that, that what you're doing is wrong. You used to party with us. What's wrong with you? You used to hang out with us. Now you're always over there at that church. You're spending way too much time at that church. You keep that up and we're not going to speak anymore. Adults are workplace. Senior citizens. We go to Senior Citizen Center to eat. But are we feeding anybody the gospel? Now don't be too mean to me, senior citizens, because I will be a senior citizen June 15th of this year. I'm already getting that discount at McDonald's, so I guess I'm already in. I'm just saying, what are we doing? See, the world needs to see, the world needs to see how you handle problems like, like a Christian. How you handle trouble with Christ. The world needs to see how you handle victories and success with Christ. They need to see how you handle your everyday life. Why? Because you're their only hope. Without you, they've got, they have a chance. And that's what I believe God is trying to teach us from this church Now, we're able to be that hope for people when we start to live this third point. When I start to resist compromising with the culture. I have to resist compromising with what my culture is throwing at me. Look at this passage. It's very haunting in Proverbs here. If a godly man compromises with the wicked, it is like polluting a fountain or muddying a spring. What's that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, I think about a the water's real sweet and of a fountain. A stream is real. I mean, as a kid, we used to go crawdad hunting in the creek. We'd look for crawdads, and Danny and I, and, and we'd see one. And if it was downstream of us, we'd go, "Oh, be careful!" And we'd hit a clump of dirt, and the dirt would, the murky stuff would cover the the crawdad. We couldn't see it. We couldn't see things, see? The, the water's polluted. It tastes funny. There's something not quite right there. See, that's what happens to our, our testimony, our witness, our influence, our impact when we begin to compromise. It just doesn't, it sounds funny to people. It doesn't seem right to people. It's already difficult to understand. We make it worse. And we make Christ more difficult to see when we compromise. You know, Jesus commends this church of Pergamos. Man, you guys, you hold on to me no matter what. You don't renounce my name. Like in Tippus, you take the sword. But I got a few things against you. Huh? Yeah, I got a few things against you. Wait a minute. Jesus, aren't you being a little harsh? A few things? No church can be perfect. I think you got the standard a little bit too high. No, I don't. I've got a few things against them. And they're big. It's a big deal. Well, what is it? There are some among you who are holding the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Here's how serious it is. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them 
with the sword of my mouth. You know, I want you to know, I've seen some fights at church. I've seen people get into it. I've seen people fisticuff at church. Here? Yeah. But I'll tell you one fight I don't want to see. That's Jesus coming in and whooping on us. That's the last thing I want. Don't want the others, but I sure don't want that. And he says, let me tell you, Tim, this is such a big deal. I'm angry over this. I'm ticked about this. If you compromise, if your church, you got people, by the way, notice he says, I commend you for this, but you have some that are doing this. Jesus is concerned about everybody in the church. He wants everybody in the church to be committed. Well, you know, the reason they're leaders and the reason because they're really committed, and I'm just not ready to be a leader because I'm not committed. You better repent of that. This isn't about leadership. This is about discipleship. He's concerned about everybody in his church. And he says, you've got some there, Tim, that are compromising with the culture, and I'm not, I'm upset. I'm angry. Wait a minute, Jesus. I don't know if you've heard, but things have changed. Things have changed in church, America. You know, we're into happy Jesus. You don't need to be getting all upset here, man. You know, you're going to run people off. Huh? Let me tell you what runs people off. Hypocrisy. That's what runs people off. And hypocrisy comes when we compromise. I can just see the church at Pergamum. You see, you've been faithful, but, you know, but something, is, something is starting to happen to this church. People are getting uneasy. The pressure to being a Christian is, and the tension with the culture is growing until maybe some of them are wondering, maybe we've gone too far. I mean, I'm hearing my, my friends talk. Don't you understand, John? My friends are talking. Jesus, you got to understand. My friends are saying all kinds of things about me. They're, they don't want to be around me anymore. They say I'm at church too much. They say I'm, I'm devoted to God too much. I talk about Jesus too much. I won't join them in their orgies. I won't join them in their parties. I mean, do we really have to be this extreme? Why do we have to be so extreme? Well, come on. Wouldn't it hurt? Wouldn't it hurt that much if we let up just a little bit? I mean, come on, Jesus. Come on, man. If we loosened up a little bit, it wouldn't be so bad. And the truth is, you're right. If we loosened up a little bit, it wouldn't be so bad in the culture. But with Christ, it would be a nightmare. See, it wasn't that there was too much church in Pergamum. There was too much Pergamum in the church. And Jesus was going, we can't have that. See, the culture, it just saps our strength, takes our purpose crushes us into mediocrity. And he says it's like Balaam. Who's this guy Balaam? He's the guy with the talking donkey. Remember last week? And what's Balaam all about? He's a prophet. And this king of Moab named Balak wants to hire him to put a curse on Israel because the people of God have gotten real close to the borders of Moab. See, they're right up against the culture. And he's thinking, I gotta find a way to stop these people, and I've heard about their God. Their God works powerfully in these people. So what can I do? I know what I'll do. I'll get a prophet of God to curse these people, and then God will be rendered useless. He won't be able to work with these people. That, that's what we'll do. Balaam, come over here and curse them. I can't do that. Why not? God says, I, I can't do that. I'll pay you more money. I can't do that. More money. More money. No. No. Each time Balaam goes, okay, I'll try. Israel, God blesses you. I can't do it, Balak. God's telling me I must bless these people. And then 
you read, when you read in Numbers, you don't, there's very little left until you start seeing that the, Israel starts worshiping the gods of Moab, the culture. How'd that happen? Well, you find out that Balaam suggests to Balak, if you can't go through the front door, try the back door. If you can't beat them, join them. What do you mean? Send some of your ladies down there, the nice ladies. Let them flirt a little bit with the men down there and see what happens. And sure enough, this committed group, this committed people that come out of the Red Sea are now starting to flirt back with these Moabite women. They begin to marry them. They start a family. And what looked as harmless, well, they eat some food sacrificed to idols, but what really is happening is they slowly become more and more engaged with the culture. And isn't that the way it always works, folks? Isn't that the way it works? It doesn't happen like that. No, it happens slowly. It happens slowly. Where, you, where were you? You weren't a small group. Well, I had a friend. They wanted to get together. We did some stuff. You know, we don't tell them what we were doing. We we're kind of vague. Well, I, I couldn't make it because I had a family thing. I couldn't make it, blah, blah, blah. And before long, it's, it's happening more often and more often and more often until they're gone. And that's what happens to Israel. In Numbers 31, it's God kills 24,000 of them. Tim, wait a minute. Did you say God kills? God kills 24,000 people because they compromised. He sounds angry. He is angry when we compromise. Why? Because I cannot influence the culture when I'm constantly compromising with my culture. Let me read... Uh, let me just read some verses to you. Some of them are on, the, some are on this page that didn't make the sermon, but I'm going to read them anyway. This is James 4 on your notes. You should know that loving what the world has is the same as hating God. What? You should know that loving what the world has is the same as hating God. So anyone who wants to be friends with the evil world becomes God's enemy. The Bible says that, folks. I didn't say that. I'm just reading it. Romans 12, don't become so well adjusted with your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. The worship, here's James, the worship that God wants is this, caring for orphans and widows who need help and keeping yourself free from the world's evil's influence. This is the kind of worship that God accepts as pure and good. Philippians, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright stars in the world full of crooked and perverse people. And then 1 Corinthians 7. What a weird verse here. Those who use the things of the world should not become all wrapped up in them. The world as it is now is passing away. You say, man, you do not want to be connected to this world. It passes away. You get too connected to it, you will pass away with it. This is Paul talking to Corinth. When I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or the greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave the world in order to avoid people like that. No, he's talking about people in the church. John said this, We know that we belong to God, but the evil one controls the whole world. So I need to be careful with the culture. 
I've got to be careful that I resist compromising the culture. Just do a quick study. Have you noticed this about the American church? The American church is changing, folks. The American church is polarizing. What do you mean, Tim? I'm just noticing. You know, the church at one time was an organism. Now it's become big business. You know what churches are interested in? Filling the seats. And so they figure out what do people want more than what they need. And they're interested in just filling the seats and getting the budget up and paying off mortgages. Have you noticed that? TV, books, so many Christian books just wasting ink. But they sure got a cool cover. It makes me want to buy it. Churches are encouraged pulpits in America. Don't talk too much about commitment. I brought a friend here. It took me six months to get here. Don't you start talking about sin too much. And don't mention hell, because if you do, you're going to run them off. How many times have we heard somebody, maybe you've heard somebody, or you've said this. So-and-so ran that person off here. They just ran them off. They didn't have to say that. They didn't have to do that. They ran them off. Now look, I'm not saying we ought to have a license to be mean to each other. Of course not. But like the old song goes, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And the American church, churches right now are splitting and dividing and fragmenting over redefining what sin is, what sexuality is, and what marriage is, what morality is. They're splitting apart. Why? Compromise. Compromise. I don't know if you're probably thinking, man, I wonder where we're compromising. Me too. Me too. It's got my eyes open. Listen, more and more Christians are accepting all world religions on the same playing field. Well, you can't, you can't say anything against Islam. You know, that works for them, and Christianity works for me. You find that in the Bible? Where'd you get that idea? You got that from your culture. You know what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know what he's saying? Nobody comes to God, whether it's Allah or Jehovah or whatever God you want to call Him, I'm the way that you only can come through me. Acts chapter 4 says, Peter and John are together, and they're telling the people there, there's no other name in which we can be saved that's under heaven. What's our culture say? It doesn't matter. You want to be that? You want to be that? It doesn't matter. Oh, you can, that sounds prejudiced. That sounds intolerant. I'm just saying the Scriptures teach there's one God and one way, and it's Jesus Christ, folks. There's a lot of gods in our world. There's going to be conflict when you start talking like that. Let me ask you a question. Where are you getting pressured to compromise? Just think about that. Where are, who is pressuring you and where is that pressure coming from that, that pressures, pressures you to compromise? 
to compromise your integrity, your character, your morals, your values. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from your family? Oh, come on, lighten up. You're too serious about this Christian stuff. Is it coming from work? Look, I need you to do something. And it's unethical. Is it coming from school? You still believe that old crap? Your old preacher's telling you? Let me tell you, there's a new thing. It's a new teaching. It's much better, much broader. You sound prejudiced and intolerant. I don't believe in a God like that. Where's it coming from? Coming from a friend? Oh, one time ain't going to hurt you none. Is it coming? Is pressure coming from someone who loves you? Come on, baby. Nobody. We love each other. See, Pergamum, the pressure came from one who, who had in his hand the right of the sword. And he could end with a word your life. If he didn't like you, kill him. Well, what, what? I have the right of the sword. Oh, okay, kill him. What a crazy culture that is, huh? And yet there are people we give the right of the sword to that intimidate us. We think they're going to end the friendship. They're going to end the marriage. We're going to end the employment. I'm going to end... Something's going to end if, if I don't give in. And Jesus says, just remember who has the double-edged sword. That person that's pushing you around doesn't have the last word, folks. But it's the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm telling you this morning, Pergamon is telling you this morning, Jesus, who is the tongue of a double-edged sword, says to you, when compromise comes, when the pressure comes, resist it. Resist it. Refuse to give in. Guys, I just wonder. We got it so easy in America. I just wonder if we have it so easy in America because we've been taking it easy in America. We just want to blend in and fit in. We don't want to make waves. And I don't know, saving people's lives is messy and hard to do. It's not sterile. It's not easy. Saving people, helping people see their eternal destiny is not easy. Not, not at all. And we'll not get anybody, we'll not help anybody taking it easy. Now I've got, I've went too long. What's the last thing I notice? The last thing I notice, and I'll be quick, that the church of Pergamos, God wants you to know is, He will take care of you. If you don't compromise, He will take care of you. If you don't renounce His name, He will take care of you. If you hold on to Him fast, He will take care of you. You see, when, when, when we're, when, when we're uh, pressured to compromise, you know why? I'll tell you, let's say it this way. Here's all I know. Why do I want to compromise? Maybe no one else is like me, okay? But here's why I want to compromise. Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to lose something. I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. I'm afraid I won't have what I need. 
have what I want. If, if I don't compromise, I could lose a friendship. I could lose employment. I could lose... My future's in jeopardy. And Jesus says it's not in jeopardy. Look what He says here. To the one who is victorious. To the one who... What does He mean that victorious? He wins the battle over compromise and refuses to give in and stands stands on His convictions. I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna? What's that? Well, Jeremiah, it's believed Jeremiah, before the Babylons took the, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, when they captured Jerusalem, he took the manna out of the temple and hid it in a cleft of, the rock, of a rock somewhere. And, and the tradition holds that the manna would come back out when, when the Messiah would come. And what does Jesus call Himself? The bread of life. He is the manna from heaven. Imagine, here's Israel. They're worried. We don't know if we're going to have... How are we going to eat? If you've read your daily Bible, we read that this week. Isn't that interesting? How are we going to eat? And God puts manna on the ground. Bread, the bread of angels. The bread of heaven. He says, I will provide. Even though these people are struggling, I will provide what they need. And what's, so, what's, God, what's God saying? He's saying, look, don't be afraid if things get worse. Don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of missing out on something because you refuse to compromise. You'll have all you need. You'll have the bread of angels. The bread of heaven. He will supply and provide what you need. So hang in there. But then he talks about this other thing. Very interesting thought here. He says there, um, I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What's that about? Well, here's the church in Pergamum. They're in the city of Satan. He goes, I know, I know it's, it's difficult to be a Christian. I know, I know you're worried about losing something and missing out. I know you're worried about rejection. You're worried about death itself. But not only will I take care of you, I'm going to give you a white stone with a name on it that only you know. What is he talking about there? What could he possibly be talking about, a white stone? Well, a white stone has a lot of different meanings. And white, in particular, in the book of Revelation, has several meanings too. But if you know the story of Achan, they casted lots, and the stone, the lot, the, the, the lot fell to Achan. It's believed that they had in this container a bunch of black pebbles with a white pebble and they would and it would reveal they throw it and the white pebble went to Aiken's family possible i'm not sure about that in roman culture which makes now more interested because that makes sense you're talking about roman culture here because they're in roman culture a white stone if you had somebody it was uh, uh, there was a verdict to be made, but the jury couldn't figure out what to do. They had a container and had a white stone and a black stone in it, and the, and the person accused would reach in, and if they picked up the white stone, they were declared innocent. Ah, I like that. That's better. But the one I like the best is this one, and that is that there was this white tablet that had, a, had your name, had a special name on here, and it was like a ticket. 
You used it to get into the theater. They had a 10,000 seat theater in Pergamum to go in to watch, to watch shows or to an event, to a banquet. And only you had it. It was only yours. It couldn't be used by anybody else. One guy described it this way. It's a white stone. It's almost like you've got your own pin code. It's yours. Nobody else has it. It's just for you. And it gives you access. My mother, this uh, birth, her birthday, I, on, on January 9th, I decided to try something different. I always just send her either candy or food or a plant. I don't know, moms, you kind of get tired of that, don't you? So I'm thinking, what can I do? So I, I noticed that the, there's the uh, Seravista Symphony is playing that weekend, following weekend of her birthday. And I thought, so I get online and I buy two tickets. And I put my names on them. And then I tell mom, I send her an email. She goes, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, this is a great idea. I said, thank you so much. I knew I must have hit the bullseye because it wasn't food or a cactus or, you know, junk. She's so excited. I said, Mom, I just realized I need to make sure your name is on the ticket. Because if your name is not on the ticket, you won't be able to get in. So I had to go back, call them up. Can we make sure her name is on, just on that ticket? Now, if Bill Smith comes walking up and says, I'm here to go to the concert. Okay, well, we're looking. What's the name? Bill Smith, I don't see your name on there. You're not going to get in. I'm Rudell Martinez, and me and Jose are coming here. Do you have those tickets for me? She said, they went, yep, they're right here. There you go. Enjoy the show. You're in if you don't compromise, listen, listen, church, a lot of us here, because we won't compromise, we're going to have conflict with the culture. You're going to get kicked out of stuff. You're going to, you're going to be shunned. You're going to be rejected. But your Lord's going to give you a white stone with your name on it. Only you know it, and He knows it. <laughs> Mine? Yeah. Get in. And it's just for you. In other words, it's not just a church. I want you to understand as an individual, when you don't compromise, God holds, Jesus holds that up in high esteem and He will reward you if you'll just hang in there. So where's the pressure coming from? Where's the compromise coming from? Let me encourage you to be victorious, to resist it. And if you have an ear, if you're listening today, May God bless you to listen to what the church is saying to Pergamum, to you, to just you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, oh, challenging lesson, Lord. Challenging. Father, I know none of us here want to disappoint you. We don't want to we don't want to be ashamed of you. And yet, Father, there are times when you put us in Following you leads us to situations that are just intimidating, frightening. Help us see, Father, that uh, following you also leads to blessing beyond our imagination. Father, I pray for us here at Greater Alton that you'll help us as we Engage with the culture, not to be influenced by the culture, but the other way around that will be influential. You know, Paul said one time, it became all things to all men to win some. Father, help us have that strategy in mind that we, that we become as much, we, we, we get engaged in our culture as much as we can without surrendering our convictions.
Because we know when we do that, it just muddies everything up. Father, for some of us here that are not Christians, Father, I pray, Father, that You'll help help uh, those of us here that need You desperately to see how much You do care, how much You love, and that You loved the world so they could become a Christian, so they could be right with You. Father, I pray that doors will open and they'll open their Bibles with someone. And they can have this relationship with You that's, that satisfies you more, that satisfies us more, Father, and takes care of us more than any God that's ever been thought of by the human mind. Father, this week, give us a keen eye and a keen, just an awareness of where the pressure comes from and help us resist the pressure to compromise and glorify You and honor You always. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.